Hello, I'm Oliver Colling, and this is my 70s TV childhood. Hello and welcome back to the podcast which celebrates growing up as a child in Britain during the 1970s and pays special attention to the TV we grew up with. A special welcome if you're listening for the first time and if you've listened before, thanks for coming back. Before we move on to the main part of today's episode, I've been asked by a listener whether I'm making money from creating this podcast. Well, the short answer, as 90% of all podcasters will tell you, is no and that this is very much a labour of love, paying homage to a simple time in my life where I remember being very happy. There are costs involved in producing a podcast, and the listener I was speaking to suggested I set up a Patreon page to help support the show, so I've done so. If you visit www.patreon.com forward slash Oliver Colling, you can find ways to support us. I'll explain more at the end of this episode. I'm going to share a personal reminiscence of Saturday nights and how TV played its part during my 70s TV childhood. I haven't got any guests or interviews in this episode, but rest assured, we've got some really exciting guests for future episodes. So today, I'm going to do a Mike Yarwood. For those who don't remember Mike Yarwood, he was an impersonator and at one stage one of the highest paid performers on British television. His main focus was on the politicians of the day, like Harold Wilson, Edward Heath and Dennis Healy, and his impressions were pretty much spot on, although usually quite kind to the subjects involved. For today's audience, think Rory Bremner without a satirical edge. His one weak spot was at the end of every show when he would emerge usually dressed in dinner jacket, with the frilly shirt front and large velvet bow tie, beloved of 70s comedians, and announce, And this is me, before going on to sing a feeble song, at which point the national grid came under pressure, due to the nation's kettles being switched on to make a cup of tea, as viewers deserted the show in their millions. Bless him. We didn't want to see Mike Yarwood as himself, rather the characters he impersonated, and it was always a hugely embarrassing moment. So, for this episode of my 70s TV childhood, this is me. Still with me? Great. Before we begin, I must confess that I never watch TV on a Saturday night anymore, so the delights of Strictly and The X Factor are unknown pleasures for me. I haven't deliberately avoided them, but, as an adult, I've always seemed to be doing something else on a Saturday evening. When you're a small child, you have no real understanding of the passage of time. Each day is an exciting new world, full of things to discover, and each day comes and goes. When you start school, there's suddenly a new regime to deal with, where your time is split between weekdays and the weekend. 
Until then, small children are a bit like Maggie Smith in Downton Abbey, able to ask their parents, what is a weekend? I suppose the school regime is the first part of training for us for the rest of our lives, through education and then into the workplace, where weekends become more and more important until we retire and then we can spread our treats across the whole week. Oh, and that prompts a personal question for some of you listeners who are retired, yet continue to do your supermarket shopping on a Saturday. Why? Just, just why? When you get to be a teenager, you find yourself in a twilight zone between being a child and an adult, so wanting to be out with your friends, but not really having anything to do. Too old to be at home watching television, and too young to be in the pub. As a teenager, sitting around in the park doing nothing was as interesting as it sounds. Once you get into the Saturday rituals of going out to pubs and clubs, it's great fun. And then, as friends get married, or get a bit more serious, Saturdays are more about sophisticated entertainment, like dinner parties, or going out to restaurants. Eventually, even that becomes too much, and we're back to the TV again, as... Well, you know, it's a bit busy to be out in town on a Saturday night, as generations of once wild party animals have ended up saying. Anyway, as a small child, Saturdays are great and different. And Saturday nights were, for me, a special time where we as a family watched some television and, for the only time of the week, didn't sit around the kitchen table eating together, but had supper, as it was described, on our knees in front of the television. During the 70s, my Saturdays had a distinct pattern to them. In 1973, my family had moved from Pancates, just outside Warrington, to Howley, an area more in the centre of the town, where my father was the rector. I've mentioned in previous episodes that my father was a clergyman, but this meant that he worked on Saturdays and Sundays. Well, from what I remember, he worked just about seven days a week, but weekends were a busy time for him with weddings and preparations for Sunday occupying most Saturdays and a full programme of church services in a busy urban parish on the Sunday. For me, Saturdays meant swimming lessons in the morning. My sister and I were picked up at 20 to 8 by Cliff Lunt, a friend of my father's and a swimming coach, and an assorted group of us children would be taken to the recently built Wollstone Baths for a morning's tuition and training. This was how I learned to swim, and it was a great discipline to have, and something for which I'll always be grateful. The highlight of the trip wasn't the swimming though, but was going up on the balcony after getting dried and dressed to have a plastic cup of fluorescent orange drink and a bag of salt and vinegar chipsticks from the vending machines before we were taken home. I'm not sure what was in the drink, but it was so brightly orange-coloured I'd imagine most of its ingredients have since been banned on health grounds. Once I got home, I might play in the garden, or take in a bit of the later morning TV that the BBC provided on Saturday before the advent of Multicoloured Swap Shop. This tended to be very similar to the programmes shown during school holidays, like Champion the Wonder Horse and Bell and Sebastian. Yet again, a shrewd move from the BBC in buying cheap foreign programmes and showing them again, and again, and again. Then, 
usually after highly informative public information film on not playing with matches or following the country code, it will be time for Grandstand with the legendary Frank Boff, or on ITV, World of Sport with the incomparable Dickie Davies. It was during the 70s that I developed my lifelong obsession with sport. So Football Focus and its ITV counterpart On the Ball with Brian Moore became required viewing, if I was at home, as I'd also started to attend football matches as a young child, going to Old Trafford to see Manchester United in the Tommy Doherty and Dave Sexton eras, which was extremely exciting, although at some points absolutely terrifying for a little boy. Otherwise, I'd be doing more normal things, like be out playing, reading, or listening to Piccadilly Radio's matchday coverage between 3 and 10 to 5. Once the final whistle had gone, then our Saturday tea time family ritual kicked off. My mother spent most Saturdays in the 1970s baking, just as her mother had done before her, producing at least two sponge cakes, two fruit pies, usually one apple and one apple and blackberry, and a lemon meringue pie. She'd also start preparing the family supper, more of which are not. We all sat down to tea around the television about five o'clock, when there was a news bulletin, after which the early evening programmes began. It can't have been like this, but I can only remember a limited number of programmes ever being on at this time. First, there was the Pink Panther show, featuring, well, the Pink Panther, with an adventure of Inspector Clouseau in the middle. That was followed by an American show, which always seemed to be either Alias Smith and Jones or Kung Fu. I loved Alias Smith and Jones, from the opening theme and its scene-setting narration about how our two heroes the outlaws Kid Curry and Hannibal Hayes, the two most successful outlaws in the history of the West, and in all the trains and the banks they robbed, they never shot anyone. Which made our latter-day Robin Hoods kind of popular. Well, with everyone but the railroads and the banks. Having gone straight and made a secret deal with the governor, they found themselves pursued by bounty hunters, sheriffs and other outlaws, which was the basis for most episodes. I can't remember why their amnesty deal had to be secret, but I suppose that was really the point of the show. I also liked Kung Fu, which, like Alias Smith and Jones, had a Western setting, but catalogued the adventures of a Chinese monk walking through the West, helping people out. The strongest memories I have of the programme were the flashbacks to his Kung Fu training, with his master as Grasshopper, in scenes which were unintentionally hilarious and endlessly parodied by British comedians of the time. After that, we had light entertainment, in the form of either the Generation Game, with a legend that was Bruce Forsyth. Nice to see you, to see you. I'd love to know how many of our listeners filled in that pause. Or Jim will fix it, with Jimmy Savile, who is now infamous for all the wrong reasons. At the time, Jimmy Savile was everywhere, from presenting Top of the Pops to urging us to clunk-click every trip, meaning fasten your seatbelts when you're in a car, which only became a legal requirement in the UK in 1983. He was also the face of British Rail's advertising, pronouncing, This is the age of the train. To most of us, he was just a rather odd grown-up, and his terrible crimes remained hidden for our view. 
This slot was also home to one of my all-time childhood favourites, Basil Brush. There was something about Basil, how he spoke, how he behaved, which had universal appeal, and the partnerships he had with Mr Derrick, played by Derrick Folds, later of Yes Minister in Heartbeat, and then with Mr Roy, a.k.a. Roy North. And they were genuinely endearing and funny. I think we'll spend more time on Basil in a later episode. Bruce's Generation Game was the original and best of the Generation Game in all of its various incarnations over the years, and it featured the lovely Anthea Redfern. Give us a twirl, Anthea, as Bruce used to say. The format, for those who don't remember, was very simple. Pairs of family members from different generations, for example a mother and a son, took part in various difficult and often hilarious tasks to earn points, after which Bruce would congratulate them by saying, didn't they do well? And to get to the ultimate test, the conveyor belt, where one of the pair would sit watching items, like a fondue set and the ever-popular cuddly toy, go past on a conveyor belt, and then have a minute to recall as many items as possible. Those they remembered, they kept. I remember it being good fun as a small child, but now I can't help feeling that we were easily pleased back then. Mid-evening was given over to the light entertainment and variety shows of some type, some of which I enjoyed, like the Two Ronnies, and the incomparable All Creatures Great and Small. But most of the diet of singing, dancing and whimsy was, frankly, depressing. Shows like Val Dunican, Mike Yarwood, and the not very aptly named Ken Dodd Laughter Show, had their amusing moments. But the middle-of-the-road singing by groups like Swingle 2, backed up by dancing from the young generation, all invariably to the music of Ronnie Hazelhurst and his orchestra, had me running for my Lego or Action Man rather than submit to the torture. And I won't even begin to consider the abomination that was the black-and-white minstrel show. It's about nine o'clock, past my weekday bedtime. We had our family supper in front of the television, which was a real treat. My mother was a good cook, but our household menus were somewhat repetitive. So every Saturday night, we had spaghetti bolognese. And when I say every Saturday, I do mean every Saturday. We all like spaghetti bolognese, obviously. Who didn't in the 1970s? But to have it every week may have been a bit much. Incidentally, I think this pattern continued well into the 80s and 90s, long after my sister and I had left home. And for pudding, we always had the lemon meringue pie my mother had made that afternoon. The reason we had supper about nine was because that was the time the American Detective Show was on. It's probably hard for our younger listeners to imagine, but in the 70s, with only three TV channels, and with life being generally a bit grim in the UK, many people watched the big US cop dramas as a highlight of the weekend. The slot featured lots of detectives, including Ironside with Raymond Burr, The Rockford Files starring James Garner, and Cannon, which featured an obese detective with a liking for fine food, played by William Conrad. But my personal favourites were Kojak with Telly Savalas, who loves you, baby? 
and, in my humble opinion, the greatest of all 70s US cops, Starsky and Hutch, with Paul Michael Glazer and David Soule. We're going to look at TV detectives in a future episode, so I won't go on for too long about Starsky and Hutch, other than to say they were a huge phenomenon in the UK during the 1970s. They were effortlessly cool, unconventional, but always got results. Their interplay with their exasperated boss, Captain Doby, and their chief informant, the hip Huggy Bear, was great theatre, expertly played. I also think that some of the popularity of this country came from the contrast between 1970s Britain and the glamorous Californian world of Starsky and Hutch, dealing with drug dealers, pimps and organised crime, while still managing to charm the ladies. It was all a bit more exciting than Warrington. It even led to David Soule having two UK number one hit singles with Don't Give Up On Us Baby and Silver Lady. As I say, more about 70s TV detectives another time. ITV doesn't figure much in my Saturday night viewing memories, so I'm not sure what they had on. I do remember some of the light entertainment shows they ran, like the baffling 321 with Ted Rogers, where contestants had to watch dreadful light entertainment sketches and then try and solve opaque riddles. Prizes ranged from a car to Dusty Bin, who was an animated dustbin. Yes, you heard that correctly, a dustbin. The whole concept apparently came from a Spanish show, Unos Dos Tres, but I can't imagine it was as mystifying as the British version. I always thought 321 was a low point in Saturday programming, but at that point I hadn't anticipated the advent of Russ Abbott's Saturday Madhouse in 1980. I also have limited memories of watching Saturday evening TV during the summer. Perhaps I was out playing and enjoying the long summer evenings. I don't really remember. The only programme I do recall from the summer months was a show called Seaside Special, which, again, was on the BBC. Which was yet another variety show, but this time with a twist of being set in a circus big top, which travelled around British seaside resorts to bring you the show. Looking back, this may have been a good allegory for the decline of the British seaside resort, as the further the series limped on, the more depressing and desperate it seemed to get. So that's the first look at Saturday Night. I'm also very conscious there are lots of the shows mentioned that merit an episode of this podcast in their own right, so let me know what you'd like to hear more about. I'd love to hear your memories of Saturday Night TV when you were growing up, and what you used to do in that brief part of our lives where staying in made cosy nights in as a family before teenage years hit and Saturday was all about being out rather than being in. And let me know, was my family the only one in the country who had the same meal every Saturday night? Let me know at www.my70stvchildhood.com Tweet me at 70s TV Childhood or email me with your memories, oliver at my70stvchildhood.com. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening, and join us again soon at My 70s TV Childhood. If you've enjoyed listening and want to support the show, 
you can do so by visiting my Patreon site at www.patreon.com forward slash Oliver Colling, where you will find details of our membership tiers. For £2 a month, you can join the Tufty Club, get a shout out on a future episode, and learn how to cross the road safely, even when your mummy and daddy aren't there. Or for £5 a month, you can be a Blue Peter Badge member, and as well as getting a shout out, you can be my guest on a future episode, and also stroke Petra, Patch, Shep, Jason, and Goldie, and also see Frieda the Tortoise's hibernation box. All memberships are totally flexible and can be cancelled at any time. My sincere thanks for your support.